We're speaking today with Lisa Montgomery from the offices of Advice, an international educational consultancy that works with American and international families interested in pursuing higher education in the United States. Back in the summer of 2013, we spoke to Lisa about the special challenges of applying to U.S. universities from abroad. And if you're interested in this topic, I encourage you to listen to the interview, which you can find on the Tanager Wealth Management website. Her outstanding advice is timeless and remains one of our most popular Tanager talks. And now we're back for an update. So let's start with the admission season that just ended. What were some of the highs and lows of 2015, and did you see any new developments that will influence how you advise students and their families applying this year? It's, it's always the right question. What's new on the scene, and how has the situation changed from the last time we spoke or from your older child's experience or whatever has come before it? I can't say that I think there has been a major fork in the road. It's that whatever is happening in the world of admissions gets intensified year in and year out. So if it was hard to get in the last time we spoke, it's harder still in 2015. And I'm sorry to say I suspect I'll say the same thing to you in 2017, that it will it will be harder still. Students from across the globe continue to flock to America for higher education, and the numbers are just going wild at most of the most popular universities in the States. The numbers coming out of China continue to rise at huge, huge levels, so the universities have ever-increasing luxury of choice. And as is true always, the more luxury of choice you have, the less predictable your behavior is going to be. So admissions is less and less predictable every year because of their own luxury of choice. So the places that are hard to get into are ever harder with admit rates for the most competitive universities dropping below 3% in the regular decision round. I believe Harvard had a 2.8% admit rate in the regular round this year. And it's not just Harvard. It's it's Harvard and it's compatriot schools that are seeing rates that are that are that low. So the way they're doing admissions is increasingly stratified. It feels ever more like enrollment management. And when you're doing enrollment management, rather than doing admissions in a more traditional sense, you're taking away some of those touchy-feely factors in the process because you have probably four, five, six times more qualified students than, than you have spots. You have loads of not qualified students as well, jacking up your admissions numbers on the application side and leaving people frantic. So when you hear that a place like Harvard had some you know, 36,000 applications for 1,650 spots, that makes people gasp and, and panic, and it makes it harder to predict what Harvard is going to do. So super, super stratified admissions. Students absolutely need to think about what they bring to the table that is the most unique piece of their picture. 
being a very talented academic student is not unique in the Yale applicant pool or Stanford's or Princeton's or Chicago's or MIT's. So that's not it. That's just a hurdle you have to cross. Then you have to demonstrate what you're bringing to the table that nobody else has. So I'm afraid my my message isn't isn't perhaps fascinating in that it's new, but it's intensified. Everything is intensified. And certainly this year as well, an enormous amount of waitlisting in the regular decision round. So managing yield is increasingly important for university admissions officers, which means they're going to waitlist to the hilt. How, how does that work? Explain that a little bit, this waitlist mm. so, story. Yeah, the waitlist story. The um, admissions offices are deeply concerned about the percentage of students who accept their offers, and that number is known as the yield. So if you put out 100 offers and only 20 of the kids accept your offer, you have a 20% yield, and that would be considered shockingly low for a very uh, elite place. And because yield is used as a measure for the popularity of an institution, how well it's doing against its competitor institutions, do the kids that you want want you? And since however many years ago, however many decades ago, bond ratings got attached to yield figures, that had admissions officers deeply concerned about yield. So their universities don't pay a genuine financial price for it. So what do you do then in the regular round? If you've got a 1,000 spots out there and you want to manage your yield, you put out fewer offers. You don't blanket the world with offers. You put out fewer offers, and then you wait list to the hilt. You put 2,000 kids on the wait list, 3,000 kids on the wait list. Enormous numbers, even for very small liberal arts colleges, places whose entire class is far smaller than the number of kids you just put on the wait list. You see who you get in the class. Then you can both manage the demographics because you're taking them off the wait list one at a time, and you can guarantee your yield off of those students. In most instances, a university will call the student in advance, ask them if they continue to be interested in admission, wait for the student to say yes, they would accept an offer if one were forthcoming. The university says, thank you very much for that information, click, and calls you the next day and makes the offer when they can have some guarantee that they're going to yield you. It's very frustrating. Top students are getting five, six, seven, eight, nine wait lists. No offers or very few offers from the most elite schools and then wait listed to the hilt. So they then have to keep playing the game longer. Maybe that's one of the real changes this year is that with the waitlisting process or problem, however you want to define it, the process just isn't ending for kids on May 1. It's not ending. That's the day they're supposed to respond to their decisions. They do so. They accept an offer that they have, but now they're playing the wait list game. They're writing letters to universities or emails, visiting, trying to make a connection with institutions at which they are waitlisted in hopes of being admitted from that waitlist. Most of the waitlist action will close up by the end of June. Now, though, we're through the whole school year for the kids. We're into the summer. They've had it. They inevitably started with a November 1 application deadline for early decision or early action. This process has been live and active for them for far too long. Their tolerance is gone. They've had it. And it really beats them up. It really does. It, it feels like an awfully long road to then find that the universities are not actually going to yield an answer to you. It almost feels abusive, I think, for some kids. 
all of this. I've gone through all of this. And now you're going to keep thinking about it. (laughs) The students do not love it. Let me say that. They don't love it. So it is lengthening the process, Mm -hmm. which is tough on families who would just at some point like it to end. So that's wait list. It's a mess. Okay. Um, You know, the, the SAT can often be a real stumbling block for students. And I understand that the exam has been redesigned. What can you tell us about the new SAT? And do you think it will have a positive or a negative or neutral impact for international students? And and how about the trend to make the reporting of SAT scores optional? Great question. Absolutely the topic that's been on everybody's mind ever since the College Board announced that they would be redesigning the SAT. You need to understand the ACT as well a tiny bit to get a useful answer to this query about the SAT. The SAT and the ACT are competitor exams that serve precisely the same function in the admissions process. For any university that insists on seeing one of those exams, they will absolutely accept the other with with absolute equity. They don't care. Submit the SAT or submit the ACT. It doesn't matter to them a whit. But these competitor exams, of course, feel like any competitors in the marketplace. And in their marketplace, SAT is Coke and ACT is Pepsi. Well, three years ago, Pepsi beat Coke, with more market share going to ACT test takers than to SAT test takers. That did not make Coke happy. They did not like it. And we remember what happened when Coke and Pepsi actually had this problem. What did Coke do? New Coke. That was a disaster, wasn't it? Well, And now here we see SAT, we believe, putting out new Coke, which we think is going to be a disaster. What they're doing, well, I think it's going to be a disaster. Let me personalize that response. I do not speak for everyone in my industry, but there is nothing about this new test which excites me at all. But my allegiance is with my students and their families, and I don't think it's beneficial to people to change these tests. So what's SAT doing? They are redesigning their test to make it look more like the ACT. So their decision is to try to better their competitor at what they do. So they're essentially getting into the ACT game and putting up an exam that looks like the ACT on steroids. So it's the ACT fundamentally only harder. So they've made the exam more difficult. They're arguing that they're trying to make it more equitable. That doesn't sit with me at all. If you make an exam harder and you grade it on a bell curve, all you do is spread out the top end of the bell curve. You're essentially spreading out the kids that are already going to be the strongest testers. You cram the middle and make it harder for kids who aren't great testers or who don't get great support in the testing process, harder for them to do well. And then the kids at the top who are going to benefit are indeed going to be the ones who get the best tutoring, the best input, the best everything. For kids that don't have a lot of resources, your older siblings can't help you anymore. They've never seen this test. Every test prep book the family owns is useless. Your public library no longer has any valid books at all. And the kindly English teacher who's been teaching people for free at your school can't do it anymore because the test has changed so dramatically. So the test will have uh, pretty dramatic changes. A section of the mathematics portion of the test will have no calculator allowed. So kids with math anxiety, get ready for that. If your calculator is your security blanket, in some part of the test, you're going to have to hand that over 
and do mathematics on your own. The test is going to be more speeded, that is more questions per minute on the new SAT. The ACT currently is more speeded than the current SAT. SAT with the redesign is going to one-up that and make it even more speeded. The reading passages will be far longer and also more words per minute that the tester is expected to consume. The sections themselves will be longer. Is that better or worse? Hard to say. If a section is only 25 minutes, are you feeling the pressure of time and a clock ticking on you? But is it worse if you have a reading section that goes for 65 minutes and you have to focus on reading a passage and answering questions about it for 65 full minutes? For some students, those shorter sections are genuinely beneficial, gives you a chance to uh, break your focus in a good way. The section has come to an end, even if you go on to the next section in as little as 60 seconds, at least you take a breather and can commence again. You know, you get to start over on something fresh. So we think it's going to be hard. The reading passages, to me, look challenging. We've seen some that seem notably Amer-centric, and so that's concerning for international families if it would appear that some background knowledge on American history or American culture is beneficial, that's going to be a negative for international families. Uh, there was one of the passages that they gave as a sample was a portion of a speech that Congresswoman Barbara Jordan gave on the floor of Congress as they were considering impeaching Richard Nixon. She was playing on the use of the word party. If you don't understand what a two-party system is because America is not your country, I think that you're a step back in the first instance. So that sort of thing was concerning to us. One of the other sample passages was from Jane Austen. That concern there is that if you're not a native speaker of English, is it going to be very difficult for you to, under a timed, pressured situation, absorb a passage from a Jane Austen novel. It might be beneficial to the kids in the British school system who have been studying those works for quite some time, and so they might find that very recognizable and easy to absorb, but we are worried for um, non-native speakers of English that that could be difficult because of the, um, the way the language is presented and that sort of a thing. So yeah, I'm not excited about... <laughs> Did that, seem, did that seem obvious? Yeah. I'm not excited about the redesigned SAT. It's longer. It's harder. It uh, It's different enough that for the moment, we, we really don't know what's going to be on this test. The College Board has released four sample SAT exams. They have not included with that any sense of what the curve will look like. So you can take the sample test, and if you got... 50 right out of 60 questions in the section, what score does that equate to? What does to? that mean? Right, what does that mean? The answer is that we don't know. They haven't told us yet. Why? Because we believe that they don't know what the grading curve is. So that is unnerving. For any family who has a child who would naturally be taking the SAT in the coming academic year, I am strongly advising against taking the redesigned SAT. There are too many unknowns. We don't know what the grading curve is. College Board has yet to produce a test preparation booklet. There are no tutors on the planet who have ever really seen this test in action, so who's going to help you with it? Eight weeks to results. 
for the first three administrations of the test, and right now it's 18 days to results. So if the college board needs eight weeks to get you an answer, it must be because they're determining the grading curve based on what's happened. Right now, the curve is based on every student who took the test in the prior year, they set the curve. So are there going to be more people gaming what date they're taking the test as the curve is being built around the students who were taking that test? Is the curve going to be affected by the number of tutors all over the world who themselves will be taking this test? The rooms are going to be jammed with adults taking the test. Every tutor on the planet needs to sit the thing and yeah. see what they think about it. So too many unknowns. I am not excited about the new test. I'll get over myself. I have to. The current version of the SAT will, of course, evaporate, and so kids will get accustomed to the new SAT. But in the meantime, if your child is university entry 2017, take the ACT. That's my advice. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Was that too forceful? I, I, I don't have a balanced view on this. I really don't. I don't think it's helpful to students. I think it's helpful to the college board who are trying to um, yank back market share. Yeah. Well, I don't care about their market share. I care about students who are who are trying to continue with their education. Um, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to I want to follow on uh, uh, this trend of seeing more schools um, making the reporting of these scores, mm. be it SAT or ACT, yes, um, as as optional. Yes. Do you think we're going to see more of that? And what's that all about? I, I hope we're going to see more of that. I hope that more and more institutions will find that the ACT results or the SAT, ACT results predict nothing about a student's success in high school. There have been a lot of studies done that have demonstrated that the standardized tests are a really poor barometer of how well you'll perform at university. The strongest correlating factor to high scores is family income. If that is true, and it is, and continues to be true, then the SAT or ACT results on the whole only tell you something you sort of already know when an applicant applies, which is whether or not their families are well-resourced. So that's not very beneficial at the end of the day. When NYU went testing optional two years ago, uh, they got a massive round of applause, of course, from the high school side community, which would love to see these tests eliminated on the whole. They haven't come back yet, NYU, with any information about how they feel that's had an impact on the quality of their class. They have yet to graduate a class of students who came in without SAT scores. So we'll be keen to see what NYU has to say when the time comes. But there are a lot of colleges in America that haven't required SAT scores in a very long time. Places as prominent as Bowdoin, Middlebury, top, top small liberal arts colleges they're not retreating from their position. And if they can continue to bring in the kinds of classes they want with then the kinds of outcomes they want from those students four years later, I have every faith that universities don't need this test. And I think it would do students and families a heck of a favor if they got rid of it. Um, so we're hoping that trend will continue. Go optional on SATs. Great. Um, Gosh, we've come, come to uh, my last question, and um, we, we touched on this briefly um, when we were talking about the 
the, the impact of um, the wait list on yes. students and families. And, and um, so I'd like to circle around back to that. Since we last talked, Lisa, Frank Bruni of the New York Times and, and many others have commented extensively about you know, college admissions madness in the United States and the really heavy toll the process takes on everyone involved. Um, first, do you agree with these observations? Is it really that bad? And if it is, what advice can you give students and parents about to enter the process that will somehow help them be both successful mm -hmm. and stay sane? There's been a, a lot written about the college admissions madness. Certainly Frank Bruni's done a great job of staying on top of it, but he's not the only one who has come forward in the press in the last year or so querying whether or not this is really beneficial at the end of the day or necessary. It is crazy. It's crazy and it's getting crazier. The question is why? Why is that happening? Is it because the size of the population of 18-year-olds is growing whilst the number of places at universities is remaining fixed and so the natural demand is going to create a pressure because supply is, is static and demand is, is growing? The number of 18-year-olds in America is not growing although the percentage of 18-year-olds in the U.S. who will endeavor to uh, attend a four-year institution of higher education is on the rise. So it's, you're, you, hopefully, if you believe that a well-educated populace is good news, you're always going to see some growth in the percentage of 18-year-olds who are applying to university. The real increase in demand is coming from abroad, is coming from students outside the United States. And if we continue to believe that there is some value to an education gained at a prestigious institution, then those best branded universities are always going to see ever higher levels of demand. And that's what makes people crazy. They think, well, you know, my child has gone to excellent schools throughout. They have worked very, very hard. They have achieved at levels that we're all very proud of and, and have done them proud. And people seem to believe that the the reward that you get for that should be admission to a top university. Well, that's not the reward that you get for that. You might get that reward, but most families have no written or unwritten contract with any university that their child will be admitted to that institution. It's That's not part of the deal. There's no mythical social contract that says if only your child really tries very, very hard, they get to go to an Ivy League college or an Ivy equivalent, any of the great universities. But I do think families continue to believe that there is genuine value to having the name of a well-known institution on your CV for the rest of your life. And because it has that kind of value over time or that perceived value over time, people will keep fighting for it and the madness will continue. Because if you're going to keep waitlisting kids, if you're going to keep managing yield, if you're going to keep managing admissions on the whole and use a highly stratified uh, angle to manage it, as it becomes less and less predictable, the only thing that the consumers in this case can do is to apply to more and more universities. That, that's the way they are trying to manage the unpredictability of the process. And so then, of course, the, you know, the applicant pools balloon, the admit rates drop, that makes people even more crazy, and so here you go again. 
does it really matter if your child goes to a very prestigious university or not? It depends on what you mean by matters, and it, of course, depends on what your family values. Uh, there's no question about that, and for some families, it's deeply meaningful. For other families, there are other things that are meaningful in the gathering of a higher education. It might be the actual skills you learn. It might be carrying on a family tradition. It might be being in a part of the country that the family is comfortable with or happy with. Um, and for a lot of families, it's the network of people that they think their children will be part of when they're there. I say this all the time. I have so few clients that actually have any idea what Harvard teaches at all. <laughs> he said, well, give me one course in the Harvard undergraduate curriculum that you believe your child would have to take if they went to Harvard, and people can't even do that. I mean, we don't actually know how these institutions educate students on the whole. Um, people outside of the business don't really know that. What they know is that the brand has value, or they believe it has value, and they want their child to have that. To have that as they go through their lives. So the madness is going to continue. Do I think it's worth it? Uh, no, actually I don't. I think you can get an absolutely outstanding education at hundreds and hundreds of universities in America and so much of what you get out of your education and indeed out of your life is what you choose to put into it. You are an active player in your life. You are not passive. Things don't just happen to you. And so if you go to Princeton, then Princeton washes over you and you are thus changed. I don't think it really works like that. I think you can go to Rutgers and get an outstanding education. You need perhaps to, to work harder at making that happen, but it's out there. So um, no, I don't think it's worth it. The amount of emotional energy that goes into this, not to mention the amount of money that people put at this process, and truly the amount of time that kids have to take out of their lives and away from their studies and their important extracurricular activities, or maybe just enjoying their childhood for the last few moments that they can, is, is gone, is stolen from them. I think that's why we end up with over-programmed kids. I think that's... It's feeding this whole sense that, you know, if you're not being productive at all times, you are wasting a crucial opportunity. And you know what? Maybe there's something to be gained from being unproductive, at least for a few minutes a day or a week or something. So, yeah, I, I worry about it. I don't think it's going to get any better. So how do you stay sane in this process? First of all, be absolutely honest with your child about your expectations of this process. If there is an institution you would like them to attend or if there are parameters on the search, please tell your child that information. You have to go through this as part of a team with your kid and they have the right to know what boundaries and what rules you're laying out for them. It's scary for parents though. Yes, you're part of a team with your child, but now your kid's the captain of the team. <laughs> And up until now, it's probably been infrequent that you've allowed your teenager to be the captain of a family team other than, you know, touch football at Thanksgiving. It doesn't happen much. Something that's really meaningful and important, your child's in charge, and that makes people anxious, which I completely understand. I think it's well worth having someone professional helping you with the process, whether that's a private consultant or someone in your child's school that is truly, truly competent in doing this work and understands it brilliantly. 
I think it's worth it. I think given the length of time you have to put into this process, the amount of money that you're going to spend between the time you start thinking about university education and the time your child is crossing that stage in a cap and gown, you're hundreds of thousands of dollars into this process if you're looking at the most expensive universities in America. To not invest in some expert advice in getting you through that, I think does feed the anxiety. You, you know, you, at some point, you know you don't know what you're talking about anymore. <laughs> and that makes people anxious. People don't like to not know what they're talking about when the outcome matters and the amount of money you're going to put behind it is significant. Not to mention that you are talking about, for many families, the last year that your child is going to live at home with you um, or be near to you if they're at a boarding school. They're about to go off into the adult world in, in some cases, a continent or more away from you, do you really want to spend that last year fighting with them? You know, do you really want to take that time to get the tension as high as possible and to keep the two sides at odds? There are so many things that only a parent can ever do for their child. And I think at that moment, staying in your parent role, doing the things that your child can only ever get from you, a parent that they know in their heart, even when they're fighting with you, um, is, is the warmth, the bonding, the relationship building over time. It's a bad moment, I think, to get into something this fraught and this complex with the parent as, as the lead advisor on it. So I would seek some professional help, and then you don't have to discuss it at the dinner table every night, and you can be there on your kid's side saying, I know it's unfair, I know it's hard, I know you're exhausted, we're going to keep marching, I'm right here with you, and I'm making your favorite dinner tonight, and it's all going to be good. You actually don't want to be the guy saying, well, if you don't finish that essay, damn it, we're going to miss the deadline. <laughs> I just don't think you want to be that guy. So I think professional help is, is helpful. I think it's worth it, worth the investment, and there are a lot of outlets for it. You can get it. So that's what I would do. Cross your fingers and remember that your child is the same fabulous person at the beginning and end of this process. Do not let a university admissions officer let your child feel that they are good enough. Don't do it. It's not what it's about. Remember that that precious baby of yours is the same precious baby, whether or not an Ivy League university admits them. And good luck. <laughs> Lisa, as, as always, you've given us not only expert advice, but timeless <laughs> advice and um, that, that we're all going to take to heart. Uh, we've learned even more um, in the second Tanager talk about university admissions, uh, applying, applying to U.S. universities from abroad. And I want to thank you again for being on Tanager Talk. Absolutely my pleasure. Good luck to everyone as they march through this process. Thank you.